Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. This is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good. Good morning, Bradley. Okay. Good, um, Good morning. So we've got a little bit of a different uh, podcast today in that in two weeks I'm turning 50, and for the last few months I've been working on a kind of memo of things that I have learned at 50. It's entitled 50 Reflections at 50. Um, it's going to go up on Medium this morning, so all of it's in there. So please check it out if you find this podcast interesting. Uh, we're not going to read it to you because that would be really boring. So instead, Hugo's obviously has read it as well, and he's just going to ask me various questions that stem from the document in some way. Um, and, and the document's pretty wide-ranging, right? So some of it covers really big-picture lessons that I've learned mainly the hard way over the years. Um, some of it specifically focuses on fulfillment, some on relationships, um, some of it is stuff we've talked about before on the podcast, like you know what qualities best enable professional success, or what are some things that I do to really be more efficient and save time. So we won't get into those as much because if you're a regular listener, you've already heard those. Um, but anyway, I hope you like the document, um, and uh, let's talk about it. Okay, so um, I just want listeners to know because we're full disclosure here, right? As a as a podcast, uh -huh. so um, I, I gave twelve questions to Brad. I gave him a chance to look at them before, as we sometimes do with our guests. And he cut them to nine. And I'm going to ask him one of them anyway at the very end. So I want you to be prepared for that, Fine. Bradley. One of the three that you cut is going to be asked at the end. Okay? Sure. Um, all right. So 12 questions on turning 50, which are reduced to nine, but we'll have many more to talk about because the document's pretty you, interesting. You understand I've spent a career in politics where I've learned to only answer the question I that I want to well, answer. I know. I know. Right? That's why. So, I, like, ask whoever the fuck you want. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> Thank you. But what I want to do is I also want listeners to know that they come first so that, you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to. We're not going to let you get away with anything, even on your own podcast. There, there's about 6,500 words on Medium for the listeners if they want to check it out. Okay. So the first question is super basic, just on the idea of turning 50. What does the milestone mean to you? Is it scary? Is it exciting? Is it like, it, what? It's how does it make exciting. you feel? No, you know, it, it's exciting. And I think it's been a period of a lot of self-reflection, like it probably is uh, for most people. And, and I feel like I've had kind of a paradigm shift in my thinking over the past, call it two years, and I've talked about some of the ways that I've gone about that: um, meditation, regular therapy, ketamine therapy, but but just really have spent a ton of time trying to really figure out who am I, what do I care about, what matters, what should I be spending my kind of mental energy and resources on, and I think I've come to some really good conclusions. And so, in a lot of ways, I found my forties difficult, um, and I think that's not. Unusual. I think actually, if you look at the science, it tends to be the the period, the decade of lowest happiness for most people. Um, I think in part because it's just stressful. You have little careers, your career is totally little kids, your career is totally crazy. There's just a lot of stress. Um, and I think by fifty, you know, you kind of get the hang of things better. It gets a little easier. This is obviously generalization. Um, so uh, I'm I'm really excited for it. And you know, we talked last week about that Peter Tia book about longevity. I mean, I'm going to do everything I can to live for as long as I can. And in part because I feel like it took me a very long time to figure out a lot of really basic stuff. And as a result, I think the kind of happiness that maybe I could have had, I really didn't know how to have or allow myself to have until recently. And so I hope 50 is the second half, and I hope I get 50 more years, and I hope that with this perspective that I have now, I, I can make it really great. So you allude in the, in the document to your, this is, I guess, basically unhappy childhood. Yep. So let's say, okay, your 15-year-old Bradley Tusk, what did he, that 15-year-old, imagine his life was going to be like at 50, and how is it sort of 
at all like the life you have or what's the what's the difference yeah i mean in some ways it it is probably what i imagine in some ways it isn't right i think the the conclusion that i reached at that age because i had very few friends and i was bullied and beat up relentlessly literally from age five till didn't really until i was about 20. um that you know i had kind of given up on the notion that i could have a normal happy life and i remember saying to myself well you know you won't have a normal personal life, but you'll be really successful professionally. And I think you know, even then I knew that I liked government and politics. And so in some ways, what I've done since, although I couldn't have predicted you know, all the twists and turns that it took, would have not surprised me that much. Um, on the other hand, I think that I've had, you know, overall, a much better personal life than I would have expected. You know, lots of ups and downs in that too. Um, but, you know, and one of the main realizations is I spent my whole childhood desperately trying to fit in. And as everyone knows, the harder you try to fit in, the more impossible it is to fit in. And then I kind of hit this moment when I was around 20, where I was like, fuck it, you know what? Like, I'm just gonna be me and I'm not gonna take shit from anybody and whatever it is, it is. And of course, the minute I did that, things started to change because, you know, I'm a pretty weird dude, right? Like I'm an outlier <laughs> on most things, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And I think once I just accepted that about myself and decided, fuck it, I don't care, uh, A, that was really attractive to a lot of people. And B, when it wasn't, it just didn't matter to me that much anymore. And so um, I think that I would have been really pleasantly surprised um, at how my personal life turned out, even though it's obviously had some real challenges, especially in the last year or two. Um, I also, on the money front, just it was never a focus for me. So. Um, I never thought I'd have this much money, and I think what I would be happy about is what I'm doing with it, which is you know using the vast majority of it, you know, back in the government politics world to try to impact the things that I care about. So, uh, you know, when you were a teenager, when I was a teenager too, there was obviously a lot of bullying, but there wasn't a lot of sensitivity to it. It was sort of just accepted as a, a basic, like this is what kids go through, and you know, everybody had to sort of deal with it. Um, now it's quite a bit different. Um, do you think that uh, that would have made a big difference for you if there were all these sort of safeguards in place? Yeah. And would you have been able to take advantage of those things? And I, th and I think some of it was culture and environment. You know, I, I lived in, uh, we lived in Lawrence, Long Island, went to a big, really big public school. Um, and the culture was just very different than it is, say, here in Manhattan today, but maybe even different if I, we'd lived in Manhattan or somewhere else uh, when I was a kid. You know, the school that our kids go to is a Quaker school that has... Um, you know, real focus, and not to say that there isn't bullying and problems at their school too, but overall on tolerance and acceptance. And I see that in my kids and I see that in their friends. And so I think in a different environment, I might have been better than I ended up being in. Um, I also think that, you know, I had an immigrant father and a, a mom who was just doing her best, but you know, um, and they weren't really able to provide any support to me. Um, and so I think that um, that, just if I had, you know, diff different situation there that might have been different. I see the support that I'm able to provide to my kids. Uh, there was once a mild built bullying institute, bullying inst incident, sorry, involving <laughs> an institute, Lyle, and it was everything I could. It took everything I had to not literally go beat the shit out of this kid's fathers, right? Like that's what I wanted to do, right? And I, I took care of it. Um, but like the point is, I went from a childhood of zero support, zero, like they just didn't, they were just paralyzed by it. They weren't bad people at all. They just couldn't, couldn't handle it. Um, and uh, maybe I overdo it a little bit. I probably embarrassed Lyle a little bit in the way that I handled it, but it certainly fucking put a stop to it. Um, and so, 
you know, I, I think that if I had lived in a different environment, that would have been different. If I lived in a different time, um, that would have been different. And also, I just think that, like, you know, I think overall, I've been blessed with a lot of really unique qualities. There's a reason why I have a podcast. There's a reason why you're interviewing me. There's a reason why people are listening. And it's because I'm not a regular, normal person. Um, and I took, I think it just takes a long time if, if you are really different to be able to sort of accept that and understand it and lean into it. Um, and I think until that happened, I was just sort of fated to have a difficult childhood. Okay, so uh, this next question, we've actually been sort of talking about it, but it's still one, I, I think there may be another area of your life that this would apply to. But what are the setbacks in your life that you feel you've learned the most from? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's a few. I mean, I think one is um, this crushing, I just grew up with this crushing sense of obligation and burden, and I kind of internalized this idea at a very young age that, you know, a good person does everything for everyone all of the time. Um, and I think that has resulted in a lot of good qualities on my end, and I've helped a lot of people, and I'm, I'm proud of that and happy about that. But I think I also just felt this endless sense uh, of guilt and obligation that I could never overcome. So no matter what I did for anyone, no matter what I achieved, it, it never felt like enough. So I think learning that that wasn't the, one, why I felt that way once I finally figured that out. And then two, um, learning that, you know, I'm just a person, you know, and I'm a person that tries to do big things in the world, but I'm still just a person and I don't have an obligation to solve everyone's problems and every crisis and everything else. I think that was a real uh, meaningful turning point um, for me. Uh, so, so that's one. Two is, you know, look, I, I've had a lot of professional setbacks because I take a lot of risk, right? And the question isn't for me, how do I avoid having setbacks? Because if you're going to do things that are hard and meaningful and ambitious, you're going to fail a lot, right? And my day job as a venture capitalist, literally our model assumes that at least a third of our portfolio companies will fail. So it's, it's not even that the trick is to learn how to avoid failure. It's to learn what motivates my decisions in the first place and to make decisions for the right reasons. So I think one of the ways that I dealt with the pandemic emotionally was to just overwhelm myself in work and activity. And it was like the more and more and more I had going on, somehow the better I was equipped to deal with it and deal with other challenges in my life at the time. And I kind of in rapid succession launched a bunch of really bad ideas. I did a, a SPAC that failed. Uh, funded and launched a uh, tele-religion social media platform called Exalt that failed. Um, I ran Andrew Yang for mayor, which failed. And it was a brutal stretch. Um, I lost a lot of money that I could have used for, for much better purposes. Um, I took a pretty big beating publicly, especially around the, uh, the Yang campaign. Um, and I think what I know now is I don't regret trying any of those things. I regret the motivation for some of them, right, for the SPAC. It was the first time in my life that I pursued money for the sake of money. Um, I've definitely made money over the course of my career, but every time I have, I've delivered something of value, right? I made money for my investors. I solved big problems for my clients, whatever it was. Um, and in this case, it was money for the sake of money, and I kind of deserved exactly what I got, which was to lose millions of dollars. Um, on the tele-religion, I, I think the idea was good. I, I don't blame myself for sort of trying to take something difficult and new and execute it. Um, but I think I also didn't listen, right? And like when Jordan very sort of nicely tried to tell me like, hey, man, this is not a good idea, um, I ignored him. And I just, I, I 
assume too much of my own knowledge and expertise. And it's always a difficult balance because I've also succeeded a lot by ignoring people and doing what I think makes sense and what's right. But this was doing what I thought made sense and what's right in an area and sort of creating a new tech startup that I didn't have as much experience in. And that Jordan did, obviously. And that Jordan did. Right. And then when I ran Yang for mayor, you know, look, again, I did it for what I think are the right reasons, which is um, I felt like Yang would be able to recruit and retain much better talent at City Hall. Uh, I shared his views on universal basic income. He shares my position on mobile voting. Um, there was a lot about it that I liked, but I think it was also sort of I took a big swing of like, hey, can I run this guy for mayor, um, win, and then be able to have significant influence over city policy to affect the things that I care about and to try to make the city a better place without having to actually go into city government? Can I just do it from my conference room while I still get to do all the other stuff that I enjoy as well? Um, and you either got to be in or out, right? And I think that I made the mistake there. And I think also I went for sort of a quick and easy win, and the polling did indicate that that was going to be the case. So it wasn't that I didn't use data, but nonetheless, um, I should have been more uh, more cautious about it. So, you know, I had a, a stretch from 2020 to 2023 that was sort of a lot of failure um, professionally, uh, some failure personally, and some success on both fronts, too. But, you know, uh, it was definitely a learning experience. So let's talk about just that COVID moment and that that compulsion for action that kind of took over it at a period where obviously people were scared, uncertain. It was difficult for virtually every person on earth. Yeah. Um, what would you have done, like if that, if, 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 if we're going through COVID again, obviously not having just done it where we learned all these crazy things, but like, what would you do differently in terms of like just just like kind of go with the flow more? Like no, I think I would just one is I would just examine my own motivations for why, right? I think I just you know if the answer is just because I like action and excitement and attention and all of that, mm -hmm. and I sort of was you know dreaming of the things that I could do if those things succeeded, mm -hmm. um, that's not a good enough reason to to launch something. Mm -hmm. And so I think you know. If we have another pandemic, and I kind of sadly think that we probably will um, in our lifetimes, um, that uh, I think I just will better understand it. I think I also just better understand myself and kind of what I need, what I don't need. I think I have a lot less to prove to myself. Um, you know, I've said this before, but when I did ketamine therapy, the thing that was so remarkable for me was after the first session, um, I made a list of all of my good qualities and all of my bad qualities. And the thing that was so remarkable was rather than looking at bad qualities and hating myself for them or trying to figure out how to mitigate them, I was like, you know what? They're fine. They're all fine. Every single person has a list of bad qualities. And if you go through these, these don't hurt other people, right? My insecurity, my need for validation, my need for attention, um, whatever it is, you know, conflict, um, those are all things that ultimately hurt me. But hating myself for those things did more harm to me um, than the things themselves. And so I think once I realized that, I put myself on a path where I was just then in a position to really examine myself entirely. Um, I made a lot of big life changes uh, as a result. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, that was the beginning of, of seeing it differently. So I think if I went through COVID again, I think I understand myself so much better. I like myself so much more. I feel so much less obligation and guilt and burden to other people. Um, so much less need uh, for recognition. Uh, I still have it, but but not nearly as deep as it used to be. And I think also now the willingness to let myself feel good about things just based on the process, not the outcome, right? I used to be all about results and kind of hated process. 
Take like mobile voting, right? It is really fucking hard, right? <laughs> we are trying to take a system that doesn't work and replace it with something better and different over the objections of the entire political establishment, the cybersecurity community, you know, all these different people who, you know, punch back or, or punch first. So I'm, I'm like that NPR piece last week or two weeks ago, I think, you know, I'm taking hits. I'm spending incredible amounts of money uh, to do this. And, you know, long, long term will succeed because technology always wins. But I don't know if I'll succeed short term or not. Um, and if I were to say I'll feel happy when democracy is saved and I get credit for it, that may very well never happen. But now that I let myself feel good for the effort of trying to do so, um, you know, and even just the incremental progress of building our own mobile voting technology or proving it out in different pilot programs or whatever it is. Um, that, you know, is meaningful. And so I think now allowing myself to feel good about things along the way means I probably don't need to keep launching as, as many moonshots. Um, let's talk about mobile voting for a second and the process of it. Um, you're writing a book about it right now. Mm -hmm. um, you're obviously spending a lot of time on that, which, you know, like in terms of like, if someone was to try to optimize your professional life, they might say, hey, Bradley, like this is kind of like a long shot thing. And like you have a lot of opponents. There's a lot of easier paths to like through yeah. your life. What keeps you from second guessing yourself on it? I mean, your commitment to it's pretty uh, I've worked with you a bunch on some of the things and I see like your appetite for it is kind of like incredibly like all consuming when you're on it. But do you have those moments where it's, you're like, sure, like, sure, I, I certainly do. Right? Oh, my God, I'm uh, wasting my time. Or this is I, I worry. Or... Yeah, I worry about all of that. Um, not enough to not do it. I think that I'm also lucky in that even though it wasn't deliberate when I put it together, the two things that my foundation focuses on hunger and mobile voting end up sort of complementing each other really nicely. Because on the hunger stuff, we're running legislation in four or five, six states every single year. And we're passing typically about 79 percent of our bills. And every time we pass a bill, more people eat. Like it's very, very binary. Right? If we pass the bill, all of a sudden, you know, in New York, two weeks ago when school started, 300,000 more kids who didn't have free breakfast and lunch last year now have it this year. So I think I'm lucky in that I'm able to get a steady string of very tangible, meaningful wins on hunger. And I think that that gives me a little bit more patience to be able to sort of play the long game on voting. I also think with voting that, look, I have had a very kind of unusual career and probably am the only person who's had the specific set of experiences in government, especially in working in city government, state government, federal government, and doing it all over the country, um, and in technology, and in actually running the campaigns where we learned that we could mobilize our customers um, through technology with Uber. And so many different things happened, um, and, and making so much money through technology that I just am not subject to the normal pressures of political consultants, and I don't have to care about what either party thinks or anything else. And so between the, the financial independence, the political independence, the experience in government politics, the experience in technology, I don't really know who else could do this, right? Not that, that other people wouldn't have the same skill sets to make it happen, but I just have had this sort of unique mix of experiences and perspective and resources. And so I recognize that. And even though there are a lot of hard moments um, in voting, and I think if you ask, like Bob, for example, who has worked with me on lots of different projects over the years, he would agree this is the hardest thing he's ever worked on. Um, I, I recognize the need for it. And I also like the thing that gives me, I don't know if it's sucker or reassurance or whatever it is, is the status quo is so fucking bad, 
right? All you have to do any day is look at a newspaper, or, you know, go online, whatever it is, and the system is imploding so drastically, we're about to have another government shutdown, um, that uh, the need for mobile voting, the need for it to be able to drive things towards the middle and reduce polarization and reduce partisanship and give politicians the ability to work together to get things done, it only increases more and more. And so while our challenge doesn't ever get that much easier, um, the the underlying need for it is, is, is stronger than ever. Uh, let's go back to your childhood for a second, or at least one aspect of it. You talked about not having um, very many friends. You, you now have quite a few friends, and that's a big difference for you in terms of what your outlook was as a young person, thinking that you were kind of a like someone who might not have a lot of friends growing up. Yeah. What what changed in how you deal with other people? Like, obviously, people didn't just discover you and be like, oh, he's a nice guy, like, after all. Like, what? how did you go about things differently so that... I, th I think two things. I think one is, kind of what I said before, is I, I just sort of accepted that I'm me. And the reality is, for all of my flaws, like, again, I'm a reasonably interesting person, right? So, like, in terms of when you're picking <laughs> friends, like, I have shit to say. I do fun things. Like... It is, you know, uh, it, I think that there's some value that people get. In You're just thinking of Operation Sandwich, right? That's, That's all main, you're Mainly, of. but yeah. yeah. Um, and the other is, you know, I, I try to be a good and proactive friend. I mean, I, hopefully you can edit this out if, if you don't like it. But, you know, you about a decade ago or so had a hard moment in your life. And I didn't really know you that well, but I knew you from school. And I, I got your contact info and reached out and said, how can I be helpful? And we've really been friends. I, I remember it well. Ever since. Um, and I, I've tried to do that. I try to be proactive. Now, I think as I have changed my sense of burden and obligation, I don't sort of grade myself anymore on sort of what I'm doing for each person. And I've also learned the hard way that just because you do something for somebody doesn't mean you get absolute fealty and loyalty back. Um, there are people who... who surprise you and are incredibly generous and supportive at times that you need them. And there are people who take your help and fucking disappear and are freeloaders. And, you know, uh, that's just sort of the way it goes. And so um, so I think it's a combination of sort of accepting myself and just trying to be generally a proactive friend. And also there are little things like I find like it's just not that hard. To, I don't even use social media, but just like if I shoot a friend a text once a month, once every two months, it kind of maintains the relationship in between the times that I see them in person. Um, and it's just not that hard. Um, okay, I'm gonna ask you sort of a theoretical question that I think you would be interested in after reading the, well, I know you're interested in, but it's been on my mind a lot. Do you think that, uh, you, you talk about about trying to be a good person and and um, giving yourself a break on your bad qualities, et cetera. Yeah. But do you think that people really divide into, I mean, I mean, most people here into good and bad people? No. So it's it's mostly just the circumstances that people find themselves in and the patterns that they develop in dealing with those and they kind of go down one path or another. Is that? Well, I don't even know if it's one path or another because, you know, the, the, the one of the very first points in this memo is life is not linear, right? Like there's no one moment there's where no either it's all bad or all <laughs> right. good or whatever. There is no path, right? Um, I, I just think this, which is... Um, uh, to me, I don't believe in an afterlife. I don't believe in reincarnation. There's one shot on this earth and that's it. And the way to feel the best about myself, because ultimately the quotient that really matters is happiness, and the greatest happiness is feeling genuinely good about yourself, um, is by doing things that are meaningful and, and fulfilling and, and serve others and, and have relationships with others, right? And that's, it's not even because like, I'm so wonderful is that I genuinely believe that the highest ROI that you're going to produce for yourself 
is doing good things. You know, that's why there's this phrase, the, the term the hedonic treadmill, which just means you can keep buying more and more shit and achieving more and more status. And it doesn't really ever do it for you because the dopamine hit wears off pretty fast. And then you got to do it even bigger the next time, even bigger the time after that. And as a result, like, it's just, you know, it's funny that the, the people often who make a lot of money because they're good at math don't seem to understand its underlying equation, which is uh, everyone's pursuing and chasing happiness. Happiness is really about contentment with yourself. Um, and you're far more likely to achieve it as a far better investment to do good things for other people because of the way it makes you feel about yourself than to buy stuff. Now, look, they're not mutually exclusive at all. I, I had a stretch where I felt like it was binary, and I tend to generally be very susceptible to binary thinking, um, where I felt like if I did spend a lot of money on something, that was money that came away from, from something more worthy, um, and I just tortured myself uh, through that. And, you mean about like spending like on a nice hotel or a trip yeah, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and I finally came to accept that like they're not mutually exclusive, right? You know, it is okay to have nice things, and it is okay um, to give away most of your money, and I do both. Um, and there are times where, you know, uh, it may even feel a little tight because I'm doing too much of both at the same time. But overall, I, I think I've reached that conclusion. But I think ultimately, you know, there was a I was reading a, a novel, and there was a line in it uh, about a sign at a motel that said. The reward for living a good life is living a good life. And that may sort of feel a little boring in some ways, but when you really think about it and experience it, I, I think that's very much true. What interests have you developed, like, say, in the last few years that you never had before? Like, what's something you're doing that's different? You mean like origami? Like origami. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking... You know, you don't you don't have hobbies in the way that other people have. I don't know if people have hobbies when you get to be like a fifty year old guy or not. I mean, some people do. Bonsai trees. Um, <laughs> bonsai trees. No. Uh, look, we talked about this before. Meditation is right. something that I have learned to do over the past year or so, and it, I find it um, helpful. Um, sometimes it's very helpful. Sometimes mildly helpful, but generally, um, I'm glad that I'm do that. I, I would say actually the answer is what I've realized, which I always understood, but I think I finally fully realized it, which is I'm happy when I'm writing. Right. So um, one of the other things that I think I'm really excited about sort of upon turning 50 is my first novel ever is coming out. Right. And it's look, it's not going to win any fucking prizes. It's not going to be a bestseller. I, I hope you read it. I think it's a really fun read. I think it has a few meaningful we, things We have to, to come up with some cool idea. It's like a book club or something for the firewall listeners, something. Right. Sure. I mean, just to like. Yeah, you know, for, this is out. this is your fan base here. This is your yeah, community, like, right? That's God. <laughs> well, we get some numbers. Uh, we get listeners. Lack, lack thereof. Um, we get some notes back. We do. We do. <laughs> um, so, um, when I was in college, I was in the creative writing program, and I really loved writing. And I kind of hit this point upon graduation where I was like, "Look, I love working in politics. I've been working for the mayor of Philadelphia all through college. Um, I love writing." I could probably successfully pursue a career in either one, you know, which one should I do? And I picked politics because I felt like I could have a much greater impact on the world. And I felt like my ceiling was higher than it would have been in writing. If I had to guess, I would have ended up writing sitcoms. And I probably would have been like a successful showrunner because I, I know how to succeed at things, right? Um, but, but, you know, not win Pulitzer Prizes and National Book Awards and, and things like that. And so I do think that it is, for me, enormously gratifying that here I am coming full circle and that all the things that I've done in politics created enough of a story and made me interesting enough that I had the ability to write a novel that got published about it, right? Mm -hmm. So that feels fantastic. Um, and look, you know, like my first book came out in 2018, The Fixer. 
novel comes out in a couple of weeks. Um, the mobile voting book will come out next year. Uh, and what I've learned is whether it's fiction, nonfiction, uh, you know, working on a TV show, although I've never actually sold one, um, columns, whatever else, if I'm writing something, it really makes me happy. And so I try to write every single day. And I would say it's not that uh, I wasn't writing before, but I think now I understand that the psychological role that it plays in my life. Um, and it's something that I take very seriously. Okay, so other than writing, yeah, what are you better at at age 50 than you've ever been? Oh, I am far more, again, these aren't like tangible things, right? It's not like I, I still don't know how to change a tire, right? I still don't know where the carburetor is. Um, do I still you kind of aspire to be able to do that or are you no. like giving up on it? Uh, well, given up would imply I ever wanted to be able to do it. <laughs> like I still can't ride a bicycle, right? But um, I am vastly so more- So if the apocalypse hits, don't come- I'm fucked, yeah. yeah. I was born in the exact right moment for my- skill set, right? right? If I were on the 1300s, I would have died at like nine. Right. Um, so, but I am vastly more empathetic than I used to be, without a doubt. Um, I am not judgmental these days, I think, much at all. Um, I'm far more accepting of myself and uh, of other people. Um, I'm far more tolerant. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of ways that I am just a... a, a a better person, not so much in my actions, because, you know, I was volunteering at Soup Kitchens every week five years ago, just like I, you know, Will did last week and Will this week too. Um, but I think in my sort of outlook on the world and on humanity, and it's not that I don't have a clear understanding of all the limitations of humanity, and I get into that quite a bit in this, in this document, and obviously by working in politics, I'm cons consistently manipulating those limitations to try to achieve some sort of tangible goal. Um, but I, I really do think that my outlook and perspective on people in the world um, is much deeper and fuller and better than it was a couple of years ago. If someone comes to you and they say, okay, I've had a like falling out with a friend or a conflict, what's the best advice that you have as being a friend for like how to just to, to repair those things? Well, you, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, and, and I get into this also in, in, in the memo, obviously you can write it to asking me leading questions, but um, <laughs> But it's, you know, I think that on one hand, I would be able to help that person sort of look at the perspective of the person they're in conflict with and think about sort of why it is. But at the same time, I might also reach the conclusion, you know what, this person's a shit and the best thing you can do is cut them out of your life. Mm -hmm. And so I may give you advice as to how to, um, that urging you to repair the relationship and giving you some thoughts around how to do so. Or I may go the other way with it and be like, Fuck them. This person is never going to change. They're always going to be toxic. Um, they're always going to blame other people for all of their problems. And the best thing you can do is cut them out of your life entirely. And that kind of gets back to that point you made earlier, which is like, it's not binary, right? People aren't inherently good or bad. Um, there's, you know, I think hopefully the ability to have broad-based empathy and tolerance and acceptance for the world. And you'd also recognize there's a lot of really shitty people out there, whether it's their fault or not, they're shitty. Um, <laughs> and you got to cut them out of your life. I have actually become more aggressive in cutting people out of my life in recent years um, than I used to be. Because you know what? I don't know them anything. Um, so uh, I'm going to throw in the question, the last question. The dinner party question. The dinner party question. So this is a question. It's, it's, a, it's a very stock question. I think the New York Times uses it for, its, for their buy the book uh, interviews. And I don't know why. I kind of think it's cheap and lame, and yet I'm also interested in it. So you're, gonna, you're having a dinner party. You want two guests or three guests, or you want no guests at all? From, from, three. from all of history, living let, or dead. Let's go three. Three. So, and, and the one thing I'll say is, like, no Jesus Christ. 
and not even any like Martin Luther King, not like it's not that it wouldn't be great to meet Martin Luther King and talk to him. But but give us three that are very specific to Bradley Tusk in a in a in, I mean Martin Luther King could be one, but like I mean the, the stuff that pops into my head. And by the way, this is not that if, if you made a list of good and bad people, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't qualify in the good. But but <laughs> oh, um, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Um, I find LBJ endlessly fascinating, um, and I would love to be able to sit down. I mean, and the funny thing is with him, you, you know what you do? You just ask him questions. And it's, it's a How one-way conversation. It would, that person. it would be like the equivalent of just like watching. I remember once I was in a, a helicopter with Blagojevich and Jesse Jackson, and I and Jesse was talking the entire ride, and I realized it's as if he's on CNN and Rod and I are on the other side of the glass, but I'm also the interviewer. But sometimes he would even just announce topics himself. Blacks in the South, Democrats. And then like he would start did, talking about it. Did Rod listen to one bit of it? Like, I doubt it. Right. Okay. Um, I, I did because I found it amusing. Of course. And, I and would by listen way, to it. He's a smart, interesting dude. Yeah. Um, it's a lot so better I, than most people yeah, talking. Yeah. So I, I, I think LBJ would probably be kind of the same way, but but I would find that um, really, really fascinating. Two so more. That, that's one. Okay. Um, you know, I think someone from the tech world, um, Jobs sort of feels like the most interesting figure. Right. But he might be unpleasant. He might be. And look, you know, I, I know Elon enough to know that I would not want to have dinner right. with He would him. definitely be unpleasant. Um, yeah. But, but you know, I think someone um, from that world would be would be great. Um, you know, but I don't know. There's so many different things of, of worlds, that, lives that people have lived that I find so interesting, whether it's in sports or music or the arts or science, um, that I don't have a lot of fluency and or competence in. But I'd love to be able to pick their brain. I mean, in some ways, one, one let me make this, bring this back around to something a little more tangible, which is one of the things that I am much better at now, now that I think about your question from before than I was a few years ago, is I'm a much better conversationalist and I'm much better at asking people questions. And it's for a few reasons. One is this podcast, right? By definition, if every, if once a week, I'm asking somebody else questions because our model is you ask me questions on Tuesdays and I ask someone else questions on Thursdays. Um, that has just made me a much better interviewer, conversationalist, uh, I think even increased my intellectual curiosity. And two, um, it, if you want to impress somebody, ask some questions about themselves. Don't talk about yourself, right? Like I've learned this the hard way, but like, you know, I think people go into this like, let me tell you all the hundred great things about me. Um, and the truth is like, People don't really like hearing that, but if you ask them about themselves, people love fucking talking about themselves. And so if you give them a permission to do so, and so um, one thing that I am much better at is, is sort of engaging with people and asking questions. And, and so um, I do think one nice thing about this dinner party, if it ever did happen, is um, I would be able to sort of really make the most of it because I have picked up a lot of skills around that through the act of, you know, the art, art or actor just experience of podcasting. Do you want to throw one more name out there or no? Hugo, Hugo. Of course, I would invite you. Hugo <laughs> oh, I get to go. Me, you, LBJ, and then okay, Steve Jobs, and then Jackie <laughs> Robinson, or something like that. Jackie Robinson. I mean, I'd like to know what you know what was on his mind. Okay, so um, Bradley, why don't you just give one last uh, sort of I don't know, not pitch, but tell people why they should read this or what? I guess I guess one thing I would say is. If people do read it and they see something in there that they want us to talk about on the podcast, we would love to obviously yeah, hear us, about that. Let us know. There's, there's all, I mean, it's like, I don't know, 20, 25 pages long in this thing. Yeah. So there's a lot of different stuff, a lot of professional stuff, a lot of personal stuff, everything in between. So I think there's fodder for other conversations for, we could for have. For sure. But I mean, why to read it? I would say one, 
Uh, I think it's very transparent and honest and vulnerable. Um, I think that I, um, one thing that I've gotten very good at is I am comfortable admitting fault and blame and accepting responsibility and showing all of my imperfections and not really running away from them or being embarrassed by them. And so I think the document does that. And so as a result, it, it feels honest and trustworthy because I don't spare myself in it um, at all, right? So that's number one. Number two is, you know, I've spent the last few years working so hard on myself, reading so much, studying so much, talking to so many people, you know, going through all these different methodologies and approaches that in some ways this is the this is the product of all of the, the work that I've done. So it's not unlike when someone writes a, a, a nonfiction book, they do all this research and they say, okay, here's what I learned. Um, this is a little bit like that too. And there is sort of behavioral economics built into this document uh, and behavioral economic concepts um, because I am really interested in that and because it really did shape um, a lot of my thinking. And number three is like, look, you know, for the first 50 years of someone's life, there's been a lot of good. There's been plenty of bad, uh, plenty of failure, a lot of success. But it, it's been pretty packed, you know. Like I've done a lot of stuff, um, and what I tried to do when I wrote this over three or four months, you know, this wasn't something I just dashed off over the weekend. I really spent a ridiculous amount of time on this thing um, because it really, to me, was a reflection of who I am today. And so, uh, you know, if if you like this podcast and, and you like the way that I think, um, this document, anyways, is vastly better than an individual episode of this podcast because so much time and effort went into it. That's great. Bradley, I'll see you next week. See you next week. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.